Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Lore of the Dreamscape by Ian Gordon Part 2 The Transitional Realm The dusky skies were indiscernible as Murphy glanced upward through the looming canopies and arched branches. Beams of moonlight fought to penetrate the cloudscape, casting a dull luminescence across the quiet forest. The dirt track was made up of gravelly lumps, pebbles and sand, making it challenging to traverse. The track was flanked by giant ferns and trees of varying heights, limbs of oak intertwining with sticks of sycamore, pea-green leaves enclosing delicate caterpillars, glutinous sap clinging to crinkly bark. The path zigzagged through the forest, its scenery forever changing dark foliage engulfing statuesque elms and creeping bluegrass afoot stumpy pines. The deeper the man in the black t-shirt tramped, the darker it became, the pebbled footpath continuing to hinder progress, reducing his gait to little more than a shuffling shamble. As Murphy trudged along, his bare feet aching, he caught sight of something in the distance, a pale yellow glow. The light intensified as it neared him, the source of which was evidently a torch or lantern, as the glow was swaying back and forth, as though carried by someone. The young man paused in his tracks, cautious. The outline of a small figure came into focus as it neared him, and within a matter of seconds the figure was clearly visible, a bearded dwarf clutching an oil lamp. Reaching Murphy, the dwarf stopped and held up the lamp in order to get a better look at the young man's face. In doing so, Murphy caught a glimpse of the dwarf's face. It was a rugged set of features, full of deep lines, a brown, cabbage-like beard attached to the chin. Small, sunken eyes squinted at him, above which a mound of thick, braided hair hung loosely about his head. A fur coat covered the dwarf from neck to toe, riddled with unusual charms, brooches, tusks, and sharp claws. Oddly, the look the dwarf offered Murphy was one of recognition. Then, turning on his heel, he signalled for the newcomer to follow him. No words were exchanged, as the diminutive figure guided the young man through the woods. The pair walked in silence for a space until, quite suddenly, the dwarf abandoned the main trail in favour of an imperceptible track through a clump of ferns, beyond which was located an iron gate between two oaks. The dwarf opened the gate, and Murphy squinted in the lamplight in an effort to see what lay beyond. The thirty-one-year-old was led into a little clearing host to a number of shacks, with a roaring fire at its centre. The modest dwellings were lit up by the flames, as were a number of faces. Three dwarves sat by the fire, two of which were dressed in a similar fashion to Murphy's guide, though the third, a large and striking individual, was wearing an elegant scarlet tunic. Upon their arrival, the distinctive dwarf climbed to his feet and approached the pair. 
Murphy was invited to join the other dwarves by the fireside, next to which one of them was in the act of preparing edibles, namely mugs of beer and skewers of meat. The conversation that followed was ambiguous and bizarre. The dwarf in the scarlet tunic introduced himself as Red, and attempted to explain, in as few words as possible, the nature of the world in which Murphy had found himself. The dwarf described the dreamscape as a transitional realm, a world between worlds, in which mankind's recognized laws of nature might not necessarily apply. Reaching into a concealed pocket, Red withdrew a richly colored meerschaum pipe, and a unique pocket lighter with the letter R engraved on it. He rolled the lighter's thumb wheel and lit the pipe. After a few spluttering puffs, his address continued. "'You're not the only one to stroll through here tonight, you know,' came Red's throaty tones. "'There's another. Better watch yourself, boy.' "'I think I've seen him,' Murphy stated. "'Where's a hat?' Puffing on his pipe, Red said, "'Mark my words, boy. Better watch yourself. You're not going after him, are you?' "'Well,' Murphy began, shrugging his shoulders, "'after everything that's happened to me today, I figured the company couldn't hurt.' "'Lucky you ran into us, then,' the dwarf scoffed, ogling the man in the black T-shirt. "'I reckon so,' Murphy agreed, accepting a mug of beer handed to him by one of the other dwarves. A period of silence ensued in which the dwarves focused on their mugs of beer and the skewers of meat, a dark meat that Murphy politely refused to eat. "'I've got some directions for you,' Red offered, and proceeded to outline a way out of the forest. Murphy was to follow a faintly illuminated track in the direction of a small settlement by the name of Vokar, in order to obtain counsel at the House of Solutions.' He would know he'd reached the town upon sight of the artist Bilbiesbo Bilbesbo's famous reptilian humanoid monument. Some twenty feet in height it was. Bilbesbo was a Vokar native, a deranged sculptor, whose affinity for reptiles had ultimately led to his death, when, in an effort to appraise the texture of crocodile hide, he'd become a carnivore's lunch. Another period of silence followed, the dwarves gulping and chewing, Murphy preparing himself for the journey ahead. What the House of Solutions was, the young man hadn't the vaguest idea, but the words of the now inebriated dwarf resounded like a broken record in his bewildered mind. Seek out the House of Solutions, obtain counsel. Spurred on by the notion, he climbed to his feet and bade farewell to the party of dwarves. "'Go well, Jason,' muttered Red, puffing smoke into the air. "'I will,' Murphy replied. "'Thanks for the beer.' The dwarf simply nodded, as the young man took off in the direction of the dim track. Negotiating the trail, Murphy observed that the faint radiance illuminating the track in uniform fashion was composed of fireflies, each of which appeared to be obeying some uncanny law some hidden voice whose command was evidently urgent enough to warrant acquiescence. There was something unnatural at work, the young man mused, but pressed on regardless, guided by the soft glow of the beetles.
Eventually, Murphy reached the edge of the forest, where beyond, he saw the promised sculpture, Bilbiesbo Bilbesbo's reptilian humanoid. The thing was hideousness personified, irregular scales like ocean waves, teeth like cemetery stones, black eyes like bottomless wells. If such a thing had lived, the mere sight of it would surely have been enough to slay Bilbesbo long before that ill-fated encounter with the crocodile. The monstrosity was enclosed by a courtyard comprising ugly rock walls, uncut stones piled on top of one another haphazardly. Waning moonbeams accentuated the terrible curves and lines of both the statue and the surrounding courtyard. It was a ghastly place, and Murphy hesitated, before swiftly crossing the space in the direction of a large archway on the far wall. To the left of the archway, clearly visible above the piecemeal walls, loomed a wide stone tower, some sixty feet tall, a structure eerily familiar to Murphy. It resembled a rather distinctive building, located in his hometown of West Broughton, known as Santal Tower. Santal Tower stood in isolation atop the town's highest peak, instilling fear in the imaginations of the young and the impressionable, with its moss-green walls and crown of crumbling stones. It had been a water tower in its youth, a pressurized water supply system constructed during the Industrial Revolution. But later, in the early 1930s, a tragic flood led to the tower's closure, and as a result, the building fell into a state of disrepair. Naturally, the landmark inherited a reputation. Intrigued by the haunted tower on the hill, children flocked to the building throughout the late thirties, three of whom eventually managed to gain access to its forbidden interior. Michael Weathergreen, James Turner, and Alice Anforth bypassed the poor security measures, namely a metal fence and a gate labelled Keep Out, and crawled into a drainage duct. The duct led directly into the heart of the building, which, unfortunately, was still partially flooded. And there, in the darkness, the three teenagers mysteriously drowned, and were only discovered several days later, when an eyewitness came forward, claiming to have seen them heading towards the tower on the day of their disappearance. In the years that followed, dozens of similar stories abounded concerning Santal Tower all of which were committed to local folklore, told and retold to subsequent generations, Jason Murphy included. And so, that ugly stone tower on the edge of Vokar served as a horrible reminder of childhood terrors. Averting his gaze, the shoeless man ducked into the large archway and continued along a narrow stone passage. Emerging at the opposite end, Murphy found himself standing at the centre of what could have passed for a town in America's Old West. But not the real Old West. Far from it. A mere facsimile, as encountered on the set of a movie. The facades of the wooden structures were facades only, wooden boards supported by cumbersome beams and scaffolds. The windswept scene before him was entirely unfathomable. Golden-brown sun-baked grass sprawled across the street, crawling up through uneven slabs and 
loose stones. Kerosene lanterns hung from wrought-iron hooks, gently flickering in the moonlit darkness. Abandoned wagons lay partially buried in the sand, toasted and useless. Across the street, Murphy observed two wooden arrows affixed to a freestanding signpost. The arrow pointing to the right read, West, Cran, and the arrow pointing to the left read, East, House of Soul. Guided by the words of the dwarf in the scarlet tunic, the young man followed the latter. A gentle wind tickled his bare feet as he traversed the replica ghost town. Indifferently, his eyes fell on the false storefronts and the flickering lantern suspended from them. And, after strolling some two hundred feet eastward along the dusty highway, he found himself within striking distance of an imposter, a structure unlike the others, a facade in possession of a tangible surface area and solid brick walls. A small, round window overlooking the street emitted a soft, white light, its glow revealing a tired-looking rocking-chair positioned on the porch beneath it. A rickety sign above saloon-style doors read, House of Solutions. As Murphy approached the building, the white light blinked out, so that only the dim ruddiness of the highway's numerous lanterns aided him in reaching the entrance. Pausing before the doorway, he hesitated. What was he to do? Knock? Shout? Or simply stroll on in? Could he trust the word of the enigmatic Red? Where was that voice in the back of his mind when he needed it? The young man listened for sounds of activity beyond the threshold. He detected a faint squeaking, a subtle rocking back and forth, and his eyes were immediately drawn to the dilapidated rocking chair beneath the window. Someone, or something, was waiting for him within, an individual perched on a similar piece of furniture. Running a hand through his greasy hair, Murphy inhaled deeply, and entered the House of Solutions. The murky space in which he found himself was difficult to discern. He felt the rough surfaces of wooden planks beneath his feet, and winced as a shrill creak announced his entrance. Ahead of him, in the darkest recesses of the room, he was able to perceive the outline of a sizable rocking chair, upon which, as he had surmised, sat an indeterminate figure, now entirely motionless. Cautiously, Murphy took a step in the direction of the silent shape, before thinking better of it, and chose instead to proffer an introduction. As he did so, the being acknowledged his arrival by opening its eyes, and those wide sockets emitted soft, white light, evidently the source of the glow he'd seen from the street. Instantly, the room was brightly lit up, and Murphy saw all that there was to see. Bare brick walls, free of embellishment, and the highly polished arms of the oak rocking chair upon which the figure sat. But the source of the light, the hulking being emitting the glare, was now completely imperceptible. Only the edges of the black robes adorning it were visible under its incessant gaze. In a strange, guttural voice that sounded infinitely distant to Murphy's ears, the being introduced itself as 
Gertrude. Then it leaned back in the chair, and rocked back and forth for a stretch. Its eyes, those bright, illuminated spheres, moved up and down like spotlights, assessing its present company. In turn, the man in the faded jeans took another step forward. Eventually, Gertrude ceased its rocking, and proceeded to offer Murphy a solution to a problem. Seek out the unfamiliar within the familiar, it began in a strange, heavy voice. Find that untrodden road or footpath. Seek out unfamiliar trees and unfamiliar plains. Walk under strange stars and mysterious moons. And Murphy found that he'd heard those words before. This is the second step, Gertrude continued. But you already know that, don't you? The young man nodded, for he did know. He recalled what it was to have trodden the flats of the Zark, to have strayed beyond the familiar. The second step had led him to the bridges of slumber. Then hear this, the great being whispered, its voice low and barely audible. You must rediscover the third step. Go home. Look to he who has come for you. And with that vague, concluding statement, Gertrude closed its eyes and returned to that weird state of stillness in the darkness of the House of Solutions. Baffled, Murphy turned, his eyes once more adjusting to the gloom. Approaching the saloon door, he stepped back out onto the street. But the street had changed. Nothing remained of the mock town of the Old West, the wooden facades and kerosene lanterns had been condemned to oblivion. Instead, Murphy was met by two perfectly rectilinear rows of terraced houses, neatly intersected by a seemingly endless tarmac highway. Each and every house, as far as the eye could see, was the exact duplicate of its neighbour. Two stories, red brick, slate roof. The young man quickly realized that the building from which he'd emerged seconds earlier had now gone the way of the replica ghost town. It was nowhere to be seen. It was as though he'd been instantaneously transported from one location to the next, in the blink of an eye, perhaps the strange blink of Gertrude's eyes. Go home, it had said, and now he'd been whisked away from that place and there was something uncomfortably familiar about the thoroughfare on which he found himself. The sky above was dark and cloudless, starless and moonless, yet an ethereal, violaceous hue seemed to hang in the night air, the source of which was impossible to determine. Murphy, tired and confused, set off along the middle of the road. There was nothing to mark his progress— no distinctive landmarks, no change in the sky overhead, just the road and the houses, every last one identical, right down to the finest detail. The red brick walls, the double-glazed windows, the lanky chimney-pots, the oxblood wooden doors. Approaching a dozen or so of the duplicate properties, the young man concluded that all of them were empty. 
dark, vacant spaces with featureless walls and inappropriately gargantuan fireplaces, like gaping, malnourished mouths. Once more, Gertrude's words returned to him. Go home. Where was home, exactly? He stopped, and seated himself on a portion of interminable curb. Sitting there quietly, he mimicked the final action of the great being in the dark, and closed his eyes. Go home. Murphy meditated on the notion. What is home? He thought long and hard about it, and eventually identified his own definition of home, what it meant to him, and where he would always consider it to be. And it was in that moment of peaceful contemplation, and perhaps due to the revelatory nature of his conclusion, that once again the world about him began to change. The young man opened his eyes. The violet haze turned a deep crimson. The red bricks darkened. The chimney pots shrank. The window frames expanded. Familiar lampposts sprung from the earth like grass, quickly achieving the height of the houses, before sprouting dim, orange bulbs. And then a building from Murphy's past appeared on the horizon, rushing toward him with the momentum of a steam locomotive. The young man climbed to his feet. The oncoming house ground to a halt before him, as, without warning, a cloud of luminous vapour descended from the empty sky, enclosing the scene in a large, shimmering dome. And that wasn't all. Floating above him was a curious translucent sphere, about the size of a tennis ball. But Murphy was too distracted to focus on the orb. The ghostly house in his midst held his attention completely. It was home, his first home, the home in which he spent his childhood. The house was a modest terrace, at least it should have appeared as such, had the luminous dome not isolated it so. The familiar brickwork and slate roof were just as he remembered it, basic and typical of the late nineteenth century. He gazed fixedly at the front door, studying the years of wear and tear, including the distinctive indentation in the wood, where he once, accidentally, threw a cricket ball. Affixed to a panel above the door was the number ten, in bold, striking brass. He noted the white, wooden window frames, ever so carefully maintained by his mother, the scent of fresh paint filling his nostrils at the memory. On the other side of the windows, the curtains were closed, masking the interior, but the lights were on, suggesting that someone was home. The quiet yard, comprising flagstones and potted plants, beckoned Murphy. He shuffled forwards, his bare feet brushing against dead leaves sprawled across the yard. Go home, Gertrude had said, and there he was approaching the door of Ten Beefold Lane, a house he hadn't laid eyes upon in over a decade. How baffling! How unexpected! The translucent sphere followed Murphy, floating just to the rear of him, like an inquisitive apparition. Stepping inside, the young man allowed the heavy door to close by itself, as, in silence, he studied a scene from the past— 
The living room into which he strode was a perfect recreation of a time gone by, a time when, if his memory served correctly, he would have been a teenager. The open room was filled with familiar items—a three-seat red leather sofa and two matching armchairs, a neatly polished coffee table strewn with miscellaneous newspapers and TV magazines, a large bulky television atop a pine-corner unit, an overbearing brick fireplace filling the entirety of the leftmost wall. Above the fireplace was positioned an elaborate cuckoo clock, a centerpiece much beloved by his mother. The room, it would seem, was an ode to the rose, the perennial in multiple colours, decorating carpets, curtains, and wallpaper alike, twisting and intertwining, inundating the room. But most telling of all, a number of cards had been placed neatly across the fireplace, each in celebration of Murphy's eighteenth birthday. The man in the black T-shirt had stumbled into the memory of 1991. Nostalgia had him in its grip, and as such a wave of excitement washed over him as he thought of his bedroom. He passed through the silent living room, along the back of the leather sofa, and mounted the stairs at the opposite end. Up he went, his eyes drawn to the numerous photographs decorating the wall to his right. He was the subject of all of them, from the child of two, whose first word was toaster, to the boy of sixteen, whose expression spoke of the joy he felt, having completed secondary school. At the top of the stairs, his bedroom was situated at the end of a short corridor to the left. With the luminous sphere hot on his heels, he followed the corridor enthusiastically, and was unable to contain an audible chuckle upon sighting the familiar warning sign affixed to his bedroom door, My room, not yours. Oddly, his bedroom light switch was located in the corridor. This had given his mother some degree of control over his supposed bedtime, though she hadn't been able to do much about the portable television. Murphy flicked the switch, and watched as a band of light appeared at the base of the door. Gripping the stiff door handle, he turned it, and pushed. Much to his surprise, the room was incredibly tidy. Not a thing was out of place. To his immediate left, he saw his old computer desk, host to a Commodore Amiga, and an unbranded CRT monitor. To the right of the computer desk, towering above it, was a bulky, white wardrobe, covered with colourful stickers pertaining to popular music of the time. And to the right of the wardrobe, along the length of the adjacent wall, was a single bed, immaculately made, its pillows plumped. The young man approached the old bed and sat down. It was incredibly malleable and soft. It practically consumed him upon contact. Glancing at the pillow end, he noticed a small teddy bear. Carefully, he gripped the toy and gazed at it. It was about the size of a pint mug, wearing denim dungarees and an eye patch. Without thought, Murphy hugged the bear. He couldn't help himself. It was Brian the bear, his childhood friend. But then a thought occurred. Was Brian the bear still a part of his life in 1991? And the answer to that question was no. 
Brian the Bear had been lost in a supermarket some nine or ten years earlier. Besides, the eighteen-year-old Murphy had little time for toys. The starkness of the bedroom bore witness to the fact. Something else was at work here. But in that quiet moment, he didn't care. He lay down on the bed and placed Brian next to him as his head hit the pillow. Closing his eyes, he allowed his recent experiences to cloud his mind. He saw the staggering towers of New Babylon and the motionless bodies that littered its deserted streets. He recalled the great square and the chattering gargoyle, the unsettling clown chorus. He returned to the theatre, wherein that elusive man in the hat had studied him from the gods. He shrank from the memory of his oceanic adventure, the rotating water body from which he had unaccountably escaped. He heard the voice of the dwarf, red, felt the heat from the fire, the strangeness of their tete-a-tete. He recoiled from the reptilian statue and floated through the replica ghost town. He listened to the being, Gertrude, in the House of Solutions. All of it, every last detail, seemed to have served a single purpose, to guide him home. And just like that, he opened his eyes and immediately located the mysterious orb floating above him. What are you? he asked, noting the way the sphere appeared to be shimmering. Are you trying to communicate with me? The orb returned a series of flashes, but the sequence meant nothing whatsoever to the man on the bed. Any idea what I'm doing here? Again, a series of flashes. Is there something I'm supposed to find here? Flash, flash. But that was the limit of Murphy's queries for the present. His tired eyes closed, and he drifted into a deep slumber. Murphy was dreaming of a precipitous crag in the depths of a vast cavern. A man was atop the peak, his attention fixed on a giant, slow-moving airship below, floating above an enormous body of water. Scattered beams of light lit the strange scene, emphasizing the numerous curves and lines of the floating vessel. A prod at Murphy's shoulder roused him from the ambiguous dream. He shot up on the bed, looking from left to right, as the vision of the stranger at the top of the cliff promptly faded. And then his eyes fell on the young boy in his midst, the child, who just moments before had stirred him from his slumber. Several seconds elapsed before recognition set in. The boy was himself, a much younger version of himself, but not the Jason Murphy of 1991. This was more like the Jason Murphy of 1981. Murphy's younger self examined him with wide, bright eyes, eyes full of luster and innocence, eyes unblinkered by the devastating truths of adulthood. A mound of curly hair crowned the boy's head, engulfing his eyes and ears. Standing over Murphy, with a look of determination stamped on his face, the boy gestured towards the bedroom door, muttering something about a painting in the dining room. The man in the black t-shirt sat up and climbed to his feet. As he did so, a vague memory surfaced. In his mind's eye, 
he saw the dining-room, wherein his late father often sat by an easel, but the recollection was fleeting. The boy led his older self out of the room, claiming that a stranger had entered the house, wandered into the dining-room, and climbed into the painting above the fireplace, just as one might climb through a window. But there was more, the boy said. The stranger was now a part of the painting, a dark silhouette perched on a lonely peak. Murphy followed the boy downstairs and into the dining-room. Further memories returned to him. His father had referred to the dining-room as the library, as evidenced by the vast and numerous bookshelves covering the walls. It was in the library that his father liked to paint, inspired by the many volumes surrounding him. Murphy's eyes fell upon the spines of various books, from rosy-hued leather-bound occult grimoires, whose names included the Heptameron and the Key of Solomon, to the iridescent dust-jackets of the classics, including the complete works of Algernon Blackwood and H. P. Lovecraft's Dream Cycle. Hanging above the mantelpiece in the centre of the room was the painting the boy had evidently been referring to, a painting all too familiar to Murphy. But its familiarity wasn't due to some distantly recalled memory. It was owing to the generic landscape he'd laid his eyes on in the theatre, a rolling hill, a smattering of trees. Was this the original work? His father's work? On closer inspection, just as the boy had inferred, he saw the indistinct silhouette standing on top of the hill. Was that figure wearing a hat of some sort? Murphy immediately concluded that the outline belonged to the very same elusive individual he'd pursued across the rotating water body, the character the dwarf read had warned him about. The two Murphys gazed at the man in the painting, and the man in the painting gazed back. The elder of the two announced that he was going to climb in after him, in spite of Red's warning, to go in search of the unfamiliar within the familiar. His younger counterpart frowned. Approaching the fireplace, Murphy studied the painting minutely. It truly was a window, a door to another place. A subtle warmth met his fingertips as he extended an arm towards it. Mounting the mantelpiece, he turned to face his younger self and smiled reassuringly. The boy held up a hand and waved. Inhaling deeply, the man in the faded jeans and black t-shirt leapt into the painting. The translucent sphere that he'd all but forgotten about followed forthwith. Gary! Van Melsen called into the ether. Peter! sounded the muffled voice of Cook. What's happening? The disembodied investigator was preparing for the final push. He'd successfully managed to detach himself from Murphy's troubled mind, but the ball of vapour to which he now belonged was making communication with the young man even more difficult. Murphy and I are now separated, Van Melsen stated, acutely focused on the strange painting above the fireplace in Murphy's childhood home. I have a presence now, he continued, but I must transcend this new form if I'm to walk beside him. Tell me all you can, Peter, Cook insisted. Murphy's subconscious is spilling out, Gary. 
were seeing tantalizing glimpses of his past. It's very seductive. I sense that something wants to keep him here, or at the very least, distract him. Something? There's someone else here in the dreamscape. Someone who might very well have some influence over the place. Furthermore, Murphy is on the trail of this individual. He's drawn to him somehow. Him, Peter? Yes. I haven't managed to get a good look at him, but I'm certain this individual is leading us somewhere. And I say us, for I'm all but convinced that he's aware of my presence, too. What do you think he's after? came Cook's distant tones, decidedly anxious. I'm sure he'll let us know soon enough, but I don't like the smell of it. There was a lengthy pause before the masked shopkeeper responded. You'd better press on, Peter, he said. You've a lot to accomplish. Isn't that the truth? said the P.I., readying himself for the plunge ahead of him. But what an adventure, eh? The immaterial man heard only the distant chuckle of his masked friend as he willed himself towards the painting. Moments later, Gary Cook vanished entirely from Van Melsen's perception, as the ball of vapour penetrated the intangible membrane dividing two worlds. Emerging on the other side, the sphere promptly dissolved, spilling from its innards the unmistakable physical form of the renowned paranormal investigator. <laughs> <laughs>